Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I talk to two academics about their points of view about residential childcare in Scotland. During our discussion, themes such as the importance of peer friendships and supporting carers within the life space are discussed. We also discussed the promise and previous pieces of research. I found this discussion thought-provoking and interesting, and I hope that you do too. So without further ado, please welcome Ruth Hemond and Autumn Roish marsh Hi, Ruth and Autumn. Thanks very much for taking part in the podcast. And first question is, can you tell me a bit about yourselves? and what your connection is to residential childcare in Scotland. <laughs> Would you like to go first, Ruth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, Joe, I suppose I... Residential... Uh, we could spend the whole podcast just talking about this. Um, yeah, residential childcare run all the way through my working life, I suppose, um, starting with when I was doing my social work course um I had a real kind of wobble um whether or not I wanted to be a social worker and whether or not I thought I could do it and um just before my one of my placements I had gone to see my tutor and said oh I'm gonna have to leave but I can't do this and he said well go to the placement see how you get on and uh, it was a residential um, children's home as it was called then and um, I went along for the for the kind of visit and uh, ended up in floods of tears saying I don't think I could do this, I don't think I could do this. So the lovely manager who was my practice teacher said come back tomorrow see how you feel and it was completely life-changing. It was an incredible experience for me. Um, I learned so so much from the adults who were working there, from the young people who were living there and so when I qualified, I went back to work there and I worked there for a few years and then moved to a, a sort of sister um, service and then to a residential school. Um, and then I worked in kind of smaller group homes. Um, so, and then research wise, I suppose that that's always been my, my interest. So I did my PhD looking at um, what it was like for young people to live together and for that I, I, I was lucky enough to live in in a children's house for a year um, and that I mean that was just an again incredible experience and for the last 20 years I've worked in a therapeutic service um, for children well this, who are referred to as having complex trauma but um, a number of those young people are in residential care or connected to residential care. So research and practice, it's kind of run run all the way through. And definitely I have benefited massively from just the experience of being part of, of that type of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just in terms of your PhD study, I've read, you know, like kind of, I suppose a condensed version of that. Right. It's just about, about maybe the signpost. I know there's you've written some publications that people can access. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if you like to just name what that is, 
and then they can go and look and find it because it's a really interesting, you know, piece of research, and um, yeah. I think it'd be worthwhile for people to yeah, you know, yeah. test that. Yeah, so you can you can access the the whole thesis from the university in Stirling. I can't remember what it's called. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. Um, Oh, that's so whatever that we'll, we'll come back to it. It's fine. Right, and then I'll, I'll Google myself, see if I can. Right, okay, okay. And then there's a book been published as well, in which you feature in the book. Um, and you know, I've I've, I've read that book, and Laura Steckley, I think, is in the same yeah, book. So Autumn, Laura, and I. Uh, and Laura. Yeah, yeah, wrote wrote a, a book together a few years ago, and again uh -huh. that just came out of conversations that we were having about like the everyday and how how important just the everyday experiences are for, for children mm -hmm. and for, for the adults who care for them. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That book is called A Guide to Therapeutic uh, Childcare. Right. So that's the book I would recommend that people access because it's <sighs> I, I've I've read that book in autumn apologies. <laughs> Didn't get it there because you're obviously an author as well. Um, okay. <laughs> but it's a, it's a really, 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 really worthwhile book to read. Oh, uh, alongside Mark Smith's Rethinking Residential Child Care. That's yeah. two books that I would yeah. always recommend that people read. So, Autumn, moving nicely over to yourself now, about your kind of background. Yeah, yeah. So, I, uh, I did my undergraduate degree in English literature and religion, actually, um, and finished and didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I moved to Edinburgh and started working in the homeless sector. And I met a lot of young people coming out of the care system. And I remember quite vividly, um, one young woman I was working with who was in a real difficult uh, time and speaking to the residential unit that she'd been mm -hmm. living at. And I was just really impressed with how much they cared for her and what they tried to do to help her uh, and did a bit of work with them in that role. And then I decided I ought to get a qualification in social work. So I did my master's in social work at Edinburgh Uni and joined the locum bank in the first year. Um, so I started working in lots of units in Edinburgh. Um, and then got my first placement, which was in a secure unit in Edinburgh, um, which was a really eye-opening experience. Um, I think in some ways it was a bit more like some of the things I didn't want to do in residential necessarily. Yeah. It was after actually after Mark Smith's time. There were a lot of good staff there, but I really struggled with the control aspect and locking young people up and um, and just what happened at the other side of that for young people, like um, often they did have, some of them had good experiences in Secure, but then they were at the other end. So after my placement, I went to work in a, an open residential unit and I worked mm -hmm. a lot of hours through my, my degree and then carried on working there. Um, and, and then went into children and family social work and had various jobs more in the community, um, but I always stayed on the locum bank so I always tried to do some shifts in, in different units, which was really hard because you're kind of coming in and out. But it was also really interesting to see different ways that different people worked and, and different ways of managing really tricky situations. And um, what I absolutely loved about it, which I think if I were ever to go back to practice, I'd be very drawn to residential was the quality of relationships that you get to develop with young people, the amount of time you get to spend, what a privilege that is. And, you know, mm -hmm. doing things like, I remember one young man I worked with, you know, never been up Arthur's seat, 
So I took him up to Arthur's seat and I just was, I was so moved by the experience. He enjoyed it, but was like, I got to do that with him for the first time. You get to do things like that in residential childcare, which in other roles in social work, you don't get to do so much. So it's a, such a privilege. Um, so, so then, um, Actually, I was thinking about doing a PhD and I was reading papers that Ruth Eamond Sterling had written. And I really mm -hmm. wanted to do actually something on friendship, but I was kind of persuaded that secure care might be a better option. And I ended up doing a study on secure accommodation. Um, so then when I got my first academic job and Ruth Eamond was my mentor, it was like, wow, the stars have aligned. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so then, you know, obviously Ruth and I have done various bits of work together and, and become friends. So um, it's a dream story, really. <laughs> you can make a Hollywood film out of it. <laughs> sounds, sounds amazing. So in terms, I, I suppose I'm really interested in both your opinions about residential care and how it's used at the moment. And do you think it's used well in Scotland? And based on your response, you know, what do you think, what has shaped that particular view? So over to yourself, Ruth. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, in some ways, I feel that it's a really exciting time. Um, there's so many more conversations happening, I think, about what do we want residential care to be and, and actually what is it already, but people don't know. <laughs> so I think residential care workers and, and organisations are... are much better than they were maybe 10, 15 years ago about celebrating what they're doing and talking about it much more. Um, and I think uh, thinking for themselves much more critically about how do we do this and how do we do this differently? Um, so it feels in some ways that it's kind of come out of the shadows a wee bit. Felt like when I first worked in it, it was sort of unusual people, I don't know, it was a very, it was a wee community and we kind of all stuck together um, and supported each other, whereas I feel now it's more more visible, which is great. Um, I mean, I suppose I'm, my work has paid far less attention to, to things like kind of outcomes and much more about the sort of immediate experience for, for children. I, I think the the evidence that was gathered, I guess, through the promise, and that you know, showed quite a mixed picture. So I think there's some fantastic work happening. I think there's some other bits that people are still really struggling with. And again, the constant through that has been the the cultures that exist in in residential care, where you've got that really positive nurturing culture. I think the experience for staff and for children is a really positive one, but I think the, the culture is quite a fragile thing and it can get affected so easily by children, by changes of management, changes of staff, pressures on resources. So it, it's a wee sort of microcosm, I suppose, that can get, get buffeted very easily. I think um, so where it's working well, I think it's it's it's, it's doing really well. Um, yeah. Okay. And Autumn? I mean, I would really agree with all that. I guess the other thing I would just add is that I feel like um, it would be really nice to have, I would say this, but I think it would be really nice to have more research into residential childcare in Scotland. I feel like it's slightly fallen off the agenda a wee bit. Um, 
And I think there's lots that Celsius have brought, but I do think one of my worries when Celsius came along was that, you know, the work that Circuit doing might might be got be lost a little bit. And I think it is hard for Celsius to hold it all. So I'm not meaning to be critical. It's just that I think I think we don't have a great picture. It's been a while since a lot of that groundbreaking work was done around that transition point when Celsius took over. There had been a lot of really nice pieces of work by the government around residential childcare. And I feel like I feel like we don't know where the sector is at, the broad strokes of where the sector is at. And I do worry, um, given what's happening in England with the rise of the private sector and its impact, how, you know, what's actually happening across Scotland, because I know some local authorities closed their units and then reopened and, and it has, the sector has changed. And I think we could really benefit from a, an overview of where the sector's at, what are the risks and opportunities for the sector as a whole? Um, uh, because there are, you know, there's lots of people doing great work, but is that being shared enough across um, and, and where are we going for the future? Because it it's a really important resource. It's really important for lots of children, young people, and, and we need to look after it um, because it is a complex, complex provision to get right. As Ruth says, it has a lot of moving parts to it. Um, so I, I think I could say more, but I think that that's my, my main point I'd want to make. Yeah. Really, I, I think very good points. You know, you both have mentioned kind of things that are kind of chiming with me as well in terms of resources, how that impacts on practice, the change of manager. Uh, you know, that I suppose that the complexity associated with just providing care, um, it's massive. You know, and um, it's really important we get it right. So on that kind of note, if we agree that the strap line of residential childcare still being a placement of last resort. In a world in which residential childcare is still, you know, required in Scotland, if we agree on that as well, you know, in what way could it best be used? Yeah, I think it, it's a real frustration that it's still seen that way <laughs> as the last resort, and I think it is still seen that way. So I think children's experience of getting to the point where residential care is an option is still marked by lots and lots of difficult placement experiences, difficult family situations, and then going on into to foster care that just hasn't worked for them. And um, so I feel that by the time children get to residential care, that they're having to carry so many hurts and so many disappointments and so many letdowns, I guess, from adults that that the adults then working in children's houses are having to deal with with all of that. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of had a point where I felt much more hopeful, I suppose, that maybe we were starting to, to move away from that. I do wonder about, I know there's a big bit of research being done by um, SCRA, you know, by the children's project around the use of residential mm. care for under 12s. I, I, I'm really hoping that that might shine a bit of a light as well on just recognising the complexity of children's needs and and how residential care can play a part, part in that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I do... I do, I do feel a sense of frustration that we're still having the same conversation about it being the last resort 
it absolutely ought not to be. And we should have moved past that. Um, and as I said, I, I feel like, um, I think Autumn is right that, that the loss of Cirque, I think, was, was a bit of a hammer blow. But I do feel people are much more out there about residential work and residential practice. Um, so that, I mean, that does give me give me hope because I think more the more that people are talking about the skilled work that they're doing, the the more chance we have of people seeing it as an option. My worry always is about resource. So because it's seen as expensive, I, I think there's a sense that that these other options need to be tried first. Um, and actually, I, I can only see residential care becoming more expensive because I think we need to pay people properly for the complicated work that they do. So, yeah, it, it's a real tension. It's a real tension. I don't think I've answered your question there at all, Joe. No, no, I think, you, I think you've answered it. You know, I, I think the answer just demonstrates the complexity, complex nature of it again. And then that bit about the research you'd mentioned, basically, they're relying on data, you know, or she's replying, she was the author who, forgive me, I can't remember her name, but she was replying in comparable data, going back to stuff that Ian Milligan had um, managed to kind of uh, um, get his hands on back, oh God, it was a long time ago, you know, uh, what's the use of residential therapy, was the name of the, uh, the report they had written. Then somebody wrote them after that still, which use of residential care. So she was replying in his data, uh, relying on his data set to make comparisons between the data she'd uh, retrieved. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it kind of paints a bit of a bleak picture, you know. Um, but anyway, over at yourself, Autumn, what's your thoughts on that strap line and, you know, what do we do? Yeah, I, I, I think... I agree with what Ruth's saying. I also think it's about really being clear what the offer is. So how is residential care different? What does it offer? And trying to really match up that with the needs of young people. So thinking back to my time in residential care, you know, young people who really benefited from living with other young people. They didn't want to live in another family. They had a family that they, they had some contact with that they felt part of, uh, but they couldn't live with that family that in many cases didn't want to, but they, they really were suited to residential care, the group living, the support and care they got, the educational aspect of that, you know, um, really helped move them on and was really, really a good experience for them. So I kind of trying to really articulate what is it that residential care offers that's different to, you know, a kinship care or foster care. And obviously every residential provision is different. I and mean, that's the other thing we talk about residential care, like it's this one thing, but obviously, as Ruth said, you know, you have residential schools, you have, you know, open and closed support, all these different things. And I do think maybe individual units vary, um, but can be better or worse sometimes at really articulating what's our offer. And then try, we try and match that up with what the young person needs and what their strengths are so that those things, and I think, unfortunately, it does tend to be quite crisis-driven still in a lot of places. Um, so we've been talking about that forever of how do we get away from that way of, of doing it? It's, it's a tricky one, I'm not, you know, but more planning and more clarity from residential units themselves. This is our offer. This is what we do that's special, that's different. 
this is the kind of kids that it would really benefit. Here's our evidence for that. I think that might that might really help. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking back to research. It was actually anecdotal kind of stuff. It was years ago, and it was during the lecture. I think it was Laura Stately that was doing the lecture. And she'd mentioned that there's been anecdotal research coming back in terms of social workers who were saying that they pretty much felt guilty putting children into residential care and felt it was uh, deemed to be a failure on them. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I can't remember you know, where that, that came from, but it was, there's certainly some minimal research done around that. And I'm thinking because you two guys are social work, edu social work educators, do you think the social work degree or, de or the various degrees that are there prepares social workers enough to understand residential care so that they don't feel guilty about, you know, placing a child into residential care? Yeah, I think another great question, Joe. Uh, I mean, the, the dominance of the family as the place where children should grow up, that's, that, that's everywhere, you know? So when you think about um, how, how people learn, I suppose, about child development and, you know, there's this real push for the family as, as the site for that. Um, I think a bit like residential childcare, I think social work programmes vary massively in terms of what they teach around, around residential care. Um, there's huge variety. I mean, certainly on our programme, students do get, get a bit on, on, on residential childcare. And we also have residential childcare workers contributing to other bits of teaching. So we've got a, a wee bit of teaching around this is what residential care is. But I'm just thinking we had a colleague from residential care in uh, to the teaching that we do around record keeping and report writing and just sharing some really interesting ways that they are thinking about the daily, the daily kind of records and involving children in that. So just trying to make it much more integrated rather than here is a thing outside of our practice that is actually part of what we do. Um, we also have a number of students who have residential childcare placements like I did um, and get massive learning from that. Um, so yeah, so I think it, I think it does feature certainly on our programme, but it, at Stirling, but it, it does vary. It does vary across across different programmes. And I think you're right. I think that is a crucial element of myth busting. Then, if you know, if we can at the point of training, really help people to have a better understanding of what 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 residential care is, but the the positives to it. Added to that, though, I think there's opportunities in post qualifying training. So, you know, for example, here we do like a child welfare and protection course, we have an advanced practice skills course, we've got a supervision course, and it's great when we see colleagues from residential care coming on those courses because they bring such a wealth of experience. And, and those kind of courses, I think, sometimes can be really helpful because people are, are in the jobs they're already starting to form maybe these myths. So having these role models and these kind of um, carriers of practice into those settings, that, that's, been, that's been fantastic. And we would really encourage residential workers to, to look at those kind of courses as options, not necessarily at Stirling, but, you know, because I think the more people could come together in these spaces to share their knowledge and expertise, 
um, the better. Because I think sometimes for residential workers, there can be myths too about children and family social workers. You know, so mm. spaces where people can talk and learn together, I think is fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. So Autumn, is there anything you would add to that? Or... I mean, I agree. It's a, it's a mixed picture. I mean, I think one route in on our course that I think is useful is the theory route. Okay. You know, so like I'm a big fan of life space working. It's one of my favorites. Um, so, you know, trying to help them when you're learning about different theories for practice, how they might apply or be used in different settings. Um, so I think that's one way in using kind of case studies um, as well to try and help students empathize with what it might be like to live as a young person in a setting like that or to work um, like that. But I have no doubt that there's more that, that we could probably do, at least in our program in Edinburgh, we probably could do more on it. But I think, I think in general, it's a bit like residential. When we talk about looked after children or care experienced young people, again, I think we tend to talk about it like it's this big lump of one thing. And I think in general, we could probably get better about really getting into the detail of how foster care is different and what it offers. Residentials, it, instead of just always talking about it, like it's all this one thing, which it, it clearly isn't. But one of the things that Ruth and I and others in HE really face is we're expected to cover so much. And it mm -hmm. is a constant battle about what you what you keep in and what you take out. And, and obviously the SSSC expects us to do certain things as well. So. It's a juggling act, but this conversation has made me think, you know, we should look at it again. We should always keep coming back to it and not forget about it. Sorry, George, just going to say, one of the things that's changed for, for a lot of programmes is an increased number of international students. And I think that in some ways has, has been great because um, sometimes we talk as if people know stuff already, you know, so we'll talk about residential care, we'll talk about foster care, and assume that people have a sense of what that is. But actually, now we're, we're having to, to really define our terms, because if you come from a, a completely different welfare model, then these terms can mean nothing. Um, so that's actually been really helpful, because, you know, a number of our students have said, God, I, I didn't really understand, you know, I thought I knew what it was. So, yeah, so sometimes these wee things create opportunities for us to, to, to have, like as Autumn said, have those conversations. What do we mean by these terms? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, that's all right. I'm just kind of reflecting on your answers and it's made me think about my best experience, I would say, in terms of transitions. And it was about a young child at age five, the only child I've ever worked with in residential care at that age, came to us and it was a charity. And that young person was pretty much written off about ever going, going to a family. And they, they thought it was going to be long-term residential care for this young young, young kid. And uh, within about six or seven months, um, that mindset began to change because we were able to manage our admissions with small numbers. We It was actually an older kid that was living alongside that younger kid. Uh, however, what happened was the one of our team eventually fostered that, that young kid and things are you know they're not amazing there's still challenges but it took the edge it took the edge off that young child's crisis yeah. offered that a bit of stability and was enabled that young child to return to a, or to go into a family and 
do well. Um, so I think that model is the model I would be aspiring to try and replicate. Uh, and it's one you don't hear of very often. Almost like a kind of hybrid kind of family type kind of model, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's real scope for that to be kind of, you know, explored further and see if we can actually make that work. Yeah. You know, um, so a kind of fusion between foster care and residential care. Obviously, you need to be very careful with the ethics around that as well, because it could turn it to be like, you know, picking children to live with adults and stuff like that. It's, that's wrong. But the, I think that for me has been the highlight of my 20 year career. And <laughs> I'd like to see more of it, you know. So, yeah. anyway, that's how I thought it'd be useful to ask that question. Um, and I suppose it brings me on to the next question. It was a bit about both these have really engaged in lots of different pieces of research. Uh, and it's been really important pieces of research. Uh, are there any key themes that emerge that tells us, you know, about strengths associated with uh, about residential care? And you know, what, what do you think is your your most memorable piece of research you've engaged in? Might be hard to to, to narrow that down, but. Um. Yeah, I think themes for me definitely have been around like life space doesn't it, it, it doesn't sum it up well enough for me. I, I think there is something about really good really good residential care changes everybody that, that's part of it. Like it's not just something that's done to children. It 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 changes the adults as well. In a, in a positive way, I think. So I think with one of the themes for me or the things that I've been interested in all the way through has just been what what is this culture that we're trying to create and what, what helps that, what supports a positive kind of, um, a positive place to be um, so that people feel good about coming into their work, they want to be there, they, uh, because I think I think children benefit hugely from that when they are enjoyed, when when adults are enjoying being with them, I, I think that that makes the biggest change for children. I think that's the most important thing we can give to children is that they're they're in, they're to be enjoyed and, and being together is a is a lovely thing. Um, so that uh, I guess the big thing for me all the way through too has just been about what children give to one another um, so yeah I guess that's been a feature all the way through of, of the work that I've been involved in and a bit like your example Joe that you were given there of the, the older young person in this week to age five you know I, I, I think one of the losses when we moved from the really big institutions was that in in those settings children were expected to care for each other and and i think that's become much less fashionable but actually i i think children do a brilliant job and have huge skills um and can can say things to children that maybe adults can't <laughs> um so I think it's a huge resource. So my, my worry always with residential care is that um, it, 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 it moves to a situation where you've got lots of people living and working together, but 
the 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 model is very individual if you know what i mean so so actually people aren't thinking about the resource that is the group that that in itself is is something that helps people to change um so that's always been a real interest of mine is like what is that what what is that coming together what does that bring for adults and for children and uh, yeah so children's kind of everyday lives that's what interests me the drip 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 experience that we give children minute to minute moment to moment that that yeah. i think is the thing that helps people re repair the kind of heart bits of themselves and feel that they've they're they're growing and expanding and and there's hope there's there's a future that's that's positive that they've got a, a place in it so yeah and part of that i suppose for me has been around just the everyday lenses so I, I, I was involved for a long time looking at food um and just how food was used every day for children to to tell us things to, and for us to be able to tell children things that sometimes it's harder to say with with words i do think children and young people are incredible at letting us know what's going on if we really pay attention to what they're what they're doing and not just what they're saying so yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm waffling again. So yeah. No, 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 you're not. And again, it's again for me just in practice and stuff, like direct practice it. I can see, you know, I can really kind of connect with what you're saying. Yeah. And then what I'm kind of thinking is just in terms of group work, I think there's not enough training around it yeah. about how to be you know, able to hold the group, you know, yeah. as the adult, you know, and, and be able to kind of let, be comfortable enough to kind of let, let things flow and when to kind of step in and you know, have they kind of like conversations or just make the odd comment that then keeps a group on track, you know, over the course of, not just a day or a moment, but over the course of, you know, you know, their time with, it, with you, you know, yeah. that, that, that demonstrates again the complexity. Um, and you need to, I, I think there needs to be, a, sometimes people can get it naturally. They just got yeah. that natural ability to, to be that type of leader yeah. and empower others and empower children and young people to be leaders. But sometimes people need a wee hand yeah. uh, to get that sense of confidence, especially when you're working with young people that might be quite challenging. Um, definitely, definitely. And I think in those situations that like adults need each other so much to be able to kind of stay steady and stay that you've got a bit of space and that you're you have a role in kind of setting the emotional tone of 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 the shift, you know, that when you've got children that are really, really struggling, like to be able to stay really grounded and to be able to stay solid for that child as well as for other children in the house, I think is, yeah. is so important. And it's so much easier if we've had all these other tiny moments of connection, you know, that that, that children trust us then to be able to hold on to what's happening. Um, and that you have something, you've got a hook that you can kind of reconnect with that child that's struggling, that's mm -hmm. not about their difficulty, that's about all the other parts of themselves. You know, um, yeah, I remember what I, I worked with a brilliant woman. Um, she was kind of like my shift partner for, for a long time in, the, in a residential school. And um, we were in a kind of wee house, it was five, five boys. And uh, it was the time, this shows my age, but it was just like when Oasis <laughs> came out and we got into this weird, I don't even know how it happened, 
got into this thing of like after tea, we would sit around the table and sing Oasis songs. Right. Um, but the boys, oh, they really loved it. And there was something about singing, something about, you know, anyway. But we, we would use that when Quinn, there was one boy in particular had some really, really difficult times and, you know, we'd put music on and it was like, you know, he was so upset and so distressed, but it was like a pull on him that he could connect to something, connect to, mm -hmm. we had a relationship that, that through that, and it was just brilliant fun. Like it was brilliant fun and we were all enjoying it. And I think yeah. that, sense of connection that happens when you're genuinely enjoying children you can't yeah. beat that you can't beat that and children can't beat that you know that's what stays long term with people like that i was enjoyed you know no I, I, absolutely so autumn just in terms of the research that you've kind of been involved in and some of it might overlap with, with ruth's is there anything that kind of like sticks out and connection with residential you think is worthwhile kind of yeah. about yeah I mean I think one of the things is uh you know just back to the, the theme of relationships has gone through a lot of work that I've done and I was thinking about how like within my secure study for my PhD one of the things that was a bit of an aha for me is the way that that you know, because it was about decision making. And a lot of times we think about decision making in this individualized way, like the individual practitioner has to think logically through what they're doing. And it was really mm -hmm. interesting to think about the networks of support relationships between professionals across different services. And of course, sometimes those are dysfunctional and not great, but often they are also very positive. And we help each other to make better decisions when we work well together across services. And, um, and, and that bit about, I think for me, that relationships with young people are important, but a bit about what Ruth was saying about our shift partner relationships between professionals working together and across services are crucial. If we're gonna get it right for young people, we have to, we have to give time and space to those relationships and, and, and invest in them. Um, and the other bit of research I did with a reviewing team in Edinburgh, I was one of the things again about that was about just, we often talk about advocacy and I'm a, a great believer in advocacy, but what that piece of work really showed is you can't get past the fact that if an individual foster care or residential worker is committed to hearing the child's perspective and helping the child, to communicate that to decision makers. That is the thing that often makes the biggest difference. It's fine to have an advocate coming in sometimes and there's a role for that. But if we don't have the relationships with young people over time to help their voice be heard, that, that participation work is not gonna be as meaningful. So um, I think that's the other bit of work that was kind of an aha for me. And, and I guess something we have to keep coming back to. It, 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 we can't take our eye off the ball children's voices and their participation has to be always at the top of our agenda and mm -hmm. sometimes I think we're making progress and then I hear bits of practice and I think oh, we've still got a lot of work to do on that one um anyway I'll stop there <laughs> no no I suppose just to get back and ask both of you about the culture of a children's house and sometimes you get negative cultures and sometimes you get young people driving a culture mm -hmm. Uh, that you know it can be really quite dangerous, and I was just wondering if any of you could 
maybe give a bit of advice about how to support a change in a culture. If you have got a young person that's really promoting a culture that's maybe no safe, you know, is there any kind of things that's came through research that, that you guys have you know, been involved in or are aware of that supports the change of culture? What, what, what kind of, you know, things can people do to, to try and, like, make, make that change without moving a young person, for example? Yeah, I think that's that's at the crux of it all, isn't it? It's so difficult. And as I was saying right at the start, sometimes you can have a, a, a really well-established group, um, adults and children, that's doing really, really well. And just something comes in that blows it up, that it, it, it can be so difficult to, to reconnect with. I think for me, there's a couple of things. One is making the culture really conscious because I think sometimes we just we just get used to it because it's our day in, day out. We don't necessarily pay attention to it till it kind of goes wrong. So I think there's a preemptive bit about paying attention as a team to why is this a good place to be? Why is this a good place to work? Let's kind of think about that. Why is that a good place for children to live? Um, and Sometimes I think when times are tough, it's needing to go back to that and kind of naming that for, for staff and for, for children that like this is how we do things here, like we look after each other and it's sort of, it's not, it, it's majorly conscious, majorly visible. Um, I think the other thing that I have found helpful is when children are really, really distressed like that and are causing all of this pain and upset, I think coming back again to what do we know about this child? What's their story? Um, is there anybody in the team who has that connection or another young person that has that connection? How can we use the group? Like how can we come together to sort of say, you're all right, we've got you. We understand that this is difficult, but actually we are we are stronger than this kind of one one person, and we're going to pull them back in rather than be pulled away by that by that young person. So I think sometimes going back over a child's kind of history as a as a group of adults, reconnecting with you know where does the pain start for this child? Like where are the sore bits and and where are the child's strengths? What, what is it that they can do well and feel good about themselves for? Um, often I think for, for children who are, are, and young people who are, um, you know, very aggressive, very violent, very volatile, that, that can be incredibly difficult to get these tiny, tiny moments of connection and sometimes it is about almost protecting everybody else to try and say well we're going to hang on to you but that means we've all got to retreat a bit to give you a bit of space <laughs> um where you can you know you, there's space to destroy something but that's not going to kind of destroy all of us but i, I definitely think it's hard to keep empathy sometimes when when children are causing their behaviour is causing so much pain and so much anxiety and fear. And it's, it's trying to keep that, that empathy, keep that connection, um, really, really letting the child know this is hard and we can see how hard this is for you. And we're going to really yeah. think about how to help. Um, but I do think there's something about 
positive culture, great teamwork being talked about and thought about often um, to to protect it and to keep it strong. But really, really difficult. I wish I had a magic wand for that one. It's really interesting. Um, Autumn's renting that you would add to that. Yeah, I think Ruth said said it really well. I mean, I guess... I guess the other thing that came to my mind is just about safety um, and, you know, that bit about behavior as communication. So what is that behavior trying to communicate and can we make sense? How can we make sense of that? And at least in my experience, a lot of it is young people in their own, maybe quite dysfunctional ways, trying to feel safe. So young people who really try and control the environment, that's coming often from a place of, feeling out of control, feeling really unsafe, not trusting the adults and trying to kind of control it again to feel safe. And it can be quite destructive, but trying to think, okay, how can we help the young person get to that feeling in a different way that's going to be less hurtful for other people and for themselves? Um, Yeah. And yeah. And I guess the other thing is about finding outlets, positive outlets for energy. I'm thinking a lot about young men that I've worked with who are, they are full of hormones and energy and they need to do something, you know? That's why we sit, you know, a lot of young men go off to war because it's like, there's this energy in them and finding a place for them to make a contribution and to let that energy out that's more positive and less destructive, I think is always a good a good way to go, but it is really hard. No, absolutely. It's definitely hard. And I think the thread through this uh, podcast so far has been complexity. We're just kind of, you know, everything that kind of we're talking about, the, the, the thing that's kind of come up in my mind is, about, is, is the word complexity. You know, it's extremely complex. And I think that's how Scottish government, policymakers, I've got a kind of responsibility to make sure that. You know, if they are engaging in any sort of kind of publications or you know commissioning research, that the kind of findings get carried through, and I suppose that brings me on to my next question is about you know that particular subject matter. Um, so, for example, the report entitled "Higher Aspirations, Brighter Futures" in RCCI, which was published in two thousand and nine, um, pretty much kind of makes a range of recommendations. Um, however, like it seemed to just stopped in terms of you know the progress in terms of that report i was just wondering about your thoughts um on the nrcci report and is there any way for us to go back and begin to implement some of those recommendations that are still lying there dormant? yeah um i think it's 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 i don't know like you sort of look back over your working life and Thank God that, that there's just been these things all the way along, you know, these these kind of reports, recommendations, and think, come on, this time, this time. And I think we, I think there is change. And I think <clears throat> I think I don't think it's hopeless at all. You know, I think we have, I think we have moved forward. And I think we've taken with us a lot of great stuff. Because that's the other thing, I suppose, that sometimes reports can suggest that everything that's gone before has not been good and and your word complexity is a really helpful one there because I think I think that that there was a lot of there has always been an awful lot of good work happening in in residential settings 
Um, and that's not to say there's not been bad practice or poor practice, but I think there's there has always been good people working in, in those settings, doing good, good work. So it's how we pull that through so that it's not like, right, here we are again, we're going to reinvent it. It's much more about what, what do we pull through that, that, that has, has always worked or that, that we've learned has worked. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess some of, some of my hope comes from some of the, the recommendations in the NRCCI report appearing again in the promise. So there are there are kind of parallels. So thinking about the holding the hand of the people who hold the hand, you know, like one of the things that I thought was really important in the 2009 report was that recognition, particularly of supervision. So really thinking about actually residential workers need con con a containing, um, helpful, reflective space, and and um, I'm not sure that that element of it has been, again, it's really patchy, I think, how well supervision has been established. I think that's one of the, and this is totally anecdotal from kind of visits and, and things through the research and through my, my work just now, my practice work just now, I, I think part of what seems to really contribute to a really good culture in residential care is really good supervision. So if you've got a manager who, who is able to help you think and feel in a, in a place that feels safe, I think those practitioners are much more robust and much more able to deal with all this stuff that's been thrown at them. So I think for me, that bit about um, the promise in terms of how it's looking at the workforce and what the workforce needs, I, I really am hopeful that that a light is shone again on, on supervision. Um, and I guess the other bit about sort of continuity of relationships, I think that's like recommendation five, but yeah, just thinking about again in the promise, that's very evident like that, that we, we need to support children and young people to have relationships that run for as long as they need them. Um, mm -hmm. and, and again, it feels like the promise is maybe taking that a wee bit further on like really pushing for permission to do that and support to do that. And that that's a legitimate um, legitimate action. So mm -hmm. yeah, for me, I think I possibly feel a wee bit more hopeful now than I did four or five years ago. It felt like the report came out and, it, and then, it, yeah. But I, yeah. I, I'm not working in residential care now. I'm working in a different sort of practice setting. So Joe, you would probably have a much better sense of whether it felt live in practice to, to practitioners? No. No. Sadly not. Sad, I mean, the only people who had an interest in policy would really know about the NRCCI report. And yeah. also the thing that people probably understand is about the qualifications and the registration with SSC yeah. yeah. and that level nine, you know, you're still out there, I suppose. Yeah. The journey for that, people have got extended registration. Yeah. to try and get, you know, but it seems again, it's kind of a bit unclear about what's happening. Yeah. Um, and then with the, with the promise, with the kind of, I suppose there's a, that, a different shift in mindset within the promise about qualifications. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more about values. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, the, the two, the, to be able to kind of understand the work, you need to be qualified. You need, there needs to be the right qualification because it's complex work. 
Um, oh. And, and um, I think Frank Ainsworth highlights that in a podcast that I'd listened to that he'd um, contributed to the Celsius facilitated. It was a, an interview and he said, you know, qualifications are very important to understand what's happening and why shouldn't residential workers have the same level of qualification as, you know, social workers or healthcare workers or whatever they deserve that, you know. So that's yeah. my kind of, I suppose, my mindset about that. Um, and the rest of NRCCI, I don't think anybody's a clue, you know, with that actually ending practice. You know, the vast majority of people would be kind of oblivious to that. Yeah. Um, but again, that, that's, that's that's me, that's my, my thoughts on it. And Autumn, is there anything about the NRCCI that really sticks out for you or you get any solutions to what happened? Um, it's a bit scary how long it's been because I hadn't read it for a long time and I was like, oh, geez, I'm getting old. But um, the thing I want, I was interested in was rereading it because you forced me to look at it again was recommendation five, which talks about the role in residential work in terms of the wider world of the young person, in terms of linking with community and friends. And as you know, Joe, we've been doing some work, Ruth and I, on friendship and care experience. So we did a kind of review of the literature that was published in the British Journal of Social Work. And we've just published an Iris Insight, which is freely available that we recommend to people just um, uh, I think this issue of friendships in the wider world is, you know, it's highlighted in the promise and we really need to now get to grips with it. Um, and I think because I think that's one of the dangers with residential care and we can see that in previous inquiries when it becomes too insular, when it becomes, you know, not enough linkages to the community and the wider world. You know, if there is a bad culture, it can get really bad and dangerous. Um, so it has a protective function, but it's also about the young person's transition and their life out with uh, back into the community in, in, in a more independent way when they get older. And we've got to do that work all along. It can't be in the last six months. And so, we, you know, we really in, in, in our work been talking a lot about, well, how can we support young people to develop and, and maintain friendships and other important relationships. Um, and I, I think that's that's starting to get a bit more airtime now, but it's an area we'd like to see further developed. And obviously we'd like to do more research on it as, as well, so that we can be a bit more informed about what are the best ways that we can support friendship. Yeah, I, I think that's huge in terms of the importance of friendships and lifelong relationships, you know. Uh, you know, it's like I, I just I can't I can't really compare it because I've never actually lived in residential care. I've worked there for twenty years, but I'm trying to compare it to your school life. You know, which is far less intimate. But the people you met at school and you see them in the street or whatever, you might still remember somebody's birthday or you know where their birthday might have fell before yours, and it must be so more and a lot more intense than that if you've lived with a young person for a year or or you know some sort of point in your life. And then they just disappear. Um, it must be strange if you, if you meet that person again and after years in a supermarket or something. Yeah. You know, you couldn't, couldn't imagine what that would be like. So it really yeah. is important to try and get the best out of that. Yeah, and I think too, we're really interested in how do people talk about about their care experience in in friendship. So like as you move through life, is it is it you know, because people chat don't they when you when you make new friends as an adult or as a kind of I don't know going off to college or uni or something you know you end up talking about when you were a kid and 
you know, so we're really interested too about how, how does that experience of being in care and that kind of identity as being looked after, how does that travel with somebody through their through their friendships? Because, um, yeah, I think you're right, there's something about the immediate thing about the friends you have while you're in care, but, but there's also that bit about what happens after care, do you stay connected to people and or not? Mm -hmm. And then when you meet new people, how does it feature in, in how you tell your story, I suppose? So, yeah. Yeah. So, Okay, you know, obviously we're a time here, so we need to like, march on a wee bit to allow you guys to get and do your other bits of work. But in terms of just, a, you know, we spoke about the promise here, and within 10 years, there's a hope that basically, the, you know, the, the landscape in terms of care looks a lot different. Um, what's your thoughts on that kind of coming to fruition within the 10 years? Do you think that, you know, based on previous reports and where they went, do you think this is going to be different? Honestly, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I felt. I, I felt. I mean, there's 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 lots of debates we had about the promise as well. It's not not necessarily straightforward, and I think there's yeah lots of discussions happening just about what what do we what what do we do with it? How do we think about it? Um, I, I suppose I do wonder where it's going to fit into the national care service. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that agenda will swamp it or have the potential to swamp it, because if that goes ahead as it's proposed, I mean, that is a really radical change. Um, and that, that's been, I suppose that's the government's policy, whereas this is... Um, yeah, I mean, I know that. Yeah, I don't know. It's my answer. I, I, I think it's. I think it's complicated, Joe. I, as, I'd like to as. think things. I would like to think things move on. But as I say, that we take the good bits with us. You know mm -hmm. that that we take we take the recognition of complexity with us. We take the idea that actually, care is a big umbrella for lots and lots of different things and for lots and lots of different people's experiences. Um, I think it has created spaces for us to think and talk again about what do we actually want and what do we need and that can always, that's always a useful thing, I think, that, mm -hmm. that it's, it's posed some questions for all of us to, to think about. And I think in residential care, I mean, the whole issue about kind of brothers and sisters staying together, that, that will really change a, a group. Um, so, you know, I think there's lots of things for us as residential, people who are interested in residential work or reworking as, you know, I, I think there's lots for us to think about. There's a real push for family again. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, it'd be good to see where residential care fit so it's not at the end of the continuum again yeah we're not back yeah. to kind of we've got to exhaust all family options and yeah yeah so yeah uh, yeah what yourself in terms of you know do, do you think we're going to be seeing something radical after 10 years in terms of how it looks to be looked after basically well i'm an optimist joe so yes i'm gonna say yes and, and I think, it, but it isn't necessarily about like something totally new in some ways. It's about going back to some of the, the real 
innovations in residential care that are historical, you know, about being embedded in community, being connected, feeling that the children, young people are held beyond the residential unit in the wider community, that families feel welcome in residential units, that residential workers feel able to do family work. And, and, and you know, I can think of lots of units where that kind of stuff was happening and probably still happens. Um, so I think I'm hopeful that actually the promise could be a way of saying, you know, look at all the great work that does go on in some residential settings and what can we learn from that and how can we broaden that out and actually make the residential role. Because I think one of the things that's hard if you've worked in residential a long time is that sometimes you can feel quite hemmed in, you know, you're in a strict shift pattern. It's a lot just to cover that 24 hours. And I know lots of people get, get frustrated. They don't get time for resident, um, for family work or to do certain things that they like to do in the role. So maybe if we were going to be optimistic, we could say, well, this is a way the promise gives us a, a, a way of opening the role out again, of taking this expertise, further developing it and bringing residential into better connection with community and with family um, and with the other professions. So I am going to be super optimistic um, <laughs> um, and look at the progress we've made around trauma-informed practice, around yep. so, some of the aspects of health. I think we are making progress, uh, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and, you know, th through that kind of answer there, you can highlight the bit about supporting what the, the, the staff group to, to, to learn, for example, the skills about family work, how to do family work, how to make that effective. And the promise that speaks about the notion or, or makes again a strap line about holding the hand of those who hold the hand. Mm. So in practice, what would that look like, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, to me, I think that is the that is, um, and has always been the model of really good residential childcare, that it's it's like a Russian doll. You know, you've got the child at the centre, you've got a, 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 a group of adults around that child holding and containing and supporting the child. But in order to do that, you need a really good kind of team leader, manager holding those adults and they need held. And, 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 and they need held at a level where the system values and appreciates what it is they're doing and the complexity of what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, so for that's what it looks like to me. Really good residential childcare is exactly holding the hand of somebody who holds the hand. That, that is, in a nutshell, what it is. And, and that, to me, is about how, how do we make explicit to people who have never worked or been part of residential care, how do how do we help them know that feeling? Because it's a feeling <clears> of <throat> being held. It's a feeling of being part of something. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's really difficult to unpack to say, well, like you know, if we put all these ingredients in, we're going to come out with this this cake at the end. It, it, it's so difficult to pin it all down because it is so much to do with with the the relationships and the personalities of the people people there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think that that is what good residential care is for me. Excellent. Autumn, what about yourself? Holding the hand of those who hold the hand. Yeah, I think I agree with everything we've said. The only thing else I would add is that 
that's the other hope with the promise um, is about this wider societal view of, of again, and I, and, you know, whatever political view you take, I really admire the way Nicola Sturgeon has embraced the looked after population and said, these are our children. They belong to all of us in society. Everyone should care. Everyone should want these children to grow up loved and claimed. And, and, and I really, I think that is, that is how it should be. So the wider society and culture needs to admire and understand the work that residential people do on our behalf for mm. our children, not those children over there. And um, yeah, and I think we're, we're definitely moving in the, in the right direction with that because of leadership at the top, which I do appre appreciate. Yeah, no, that's, again, you know, there's a lot of interesting themes that we could talk about for forever, wow. including how, how the politicians support those we loved experience and how that looks, you know, uh, in terms of the people, you know, looking in from the outside. Yeah. Um, so just in terms of, you know, future research, if you could actually kind of identify something that really needs more kind of um, attention, what would that be? Also, do you want to go first? I feel like I'm... Um, well, I mean, obviously friendship is an area that I've already mentioned. So that's definitely an area. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I am really, really interested and worried about transitions still. And I think, sadly, like the entitlements have improved, but whether practice is actually, the resource has gone in to really make that happen so that if they have been held in residential care, they continue to be held and supported in their transition to more independence. So I would really like some more work around, you know, to what extent are we getting that right? It's been a long time, early 2000s, since any big research studies around you know, through care and aftercare have been done in Scotland. I, I'd really like a hard look, given that entitlements have changed, what's actually going on. And I know cells have done a little bit of that work, but I'd like to see more work being done on that and good models of transition support so we can share those better across different settings. Yeah, and, and networks of support. How do we develop social capital for young people who've been in the care system so that sustains and holds them when they move on? Yep. Ruth, with yourself. Yeah, well, like Autumn, I suppose, really interested in, in friendship. And um, personally, I would really like to do some work around um, much, much older people. So I think when we've, up to now, when we've looked at um, care experience, it, it, it's tended to stop around the kind of <clears throat> mid-20s. Um, so it's still quite an immediate experience. So I would really like to learn more about how does that experience of care follow you through life? Um, so into kind of older age. So that, that's kind of my area of interest. I would really like someone else um, to do research around um, decision-making, like resource panels, that, that kind of bit, and about their, um, their knowledge and understanding of what residential care is. So I, I think there's there's something for me about how do we how do we better educate people who hold these decisions, whether that's panel members or, or uh, senior managers who hold kind of resource decisions. I, I'm not sure they're 
the kind of understanding of what residential care is and what it offers. So I have assumptions about that in my head, and I would I would really like there to be some some nice kind of work done around that so that we better understand understand that. And and I guess that's one of the real positives about the promise in relation to the kind of fall of the money. But because I think yeah. that really laid bare, actually, if we don't make good decisions for children early, you know, if we don't really think about what their needs are and how they're best met, you know, at a really pragmatic level, it ends up costing more money. And I think we, that is quite empowering, I think, for, for social workers to be able to make the case more strongly that actually by investing in a residential experience, even at a financial level, that that's going to be of benefit to the people who hold the purse strings because I, I do still believe that decisions are made based on money based on resource uh, and that yeah and that my worry is that's only going to get worse with the kind of cost of living all all of the the economic pressures that are going to be put on local authorities oh yeah um, yeah so, yeah that's worrying times mm -hmm. um listen thank you very much to both of you for giving me your time it's been really educational for me and a privilege as well just to listen to two kind of you know well thought of academics and uh, in the field you know so it's, it's i'm sure that people get a lot from it as well so thank you very much because i talked to, you know for a lot longer but obviously you've got your everybody's got their kind of things they need to get done so um i need to, i need to stop and uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's been thank great you. and your questions have really got got me thinking in, in lots and lots of ways so yeah thank you for for the opportunity to have the chat and yeah i could have we could have kept going all day I yeah think. we could have yeah. so maybe yeah. we'll, we'll get a chance to talk again in another context and i, hope I don't so. know you're doing some research so keep in touch with us about yeah. what you're doing yeah. i hope so yep yep i'll just okay Thank you so much to Ruth and Autumn for taking part in the podcast. I hope it stimulates thought and discussion. As always, please share this podcast across your networks. And if you'd like to take part, do get in touch. Thank you.